Amen. It's worth uh, turning to Zechariah 6, uh, verses 9 to 15, which is where we'll be uh, this morning. And our last look at Zechariah for a while. Now, most weeks you'll find them there. Uh, They're hard to miss. They come in such numbers, numbers so big that sometimes they stop the traffic, uh, gathering from all parts, all different contexts, and yet they are united, totally devoted, in fact, wouldn't miss it for the world. They give their time, they invest in the cause and they think about what happens when they meet for the rest of the week. They sing songs of joy and honour and devotion and all of this uh, for a mid-table second division side. They are the mighty fans of Sheffield United at Bramall Lane and you wonder why they bother. At the same time, at Canterbury Avenue, most weeks you'll find us here. A bit easier to miss, if we're honest. Numbers are not so immense. And again, we gather from all parts, from all different contexts, and yet united and devoted. Uh, We wouldn't miss it for the, well, at least for a fair few things. And we give our time, we invest in the cause, and we think about what happens when we meet for the rest of the week. We too sing songs of joy and honour and devotion and all of this for a Jewish man from some backwater town of Nazareth, a carpenter's son who claims to be king. And they wonder why we bother. And you have to admit it, don't you? It does look rather pathetic. Even uh, when you're asked on a Monday uh, by someone what, what your weekend involved and you speak about being here together as we are this morning, Even as you try to polish it up a bit and say, well, there was actually a thousand people over the day. They've been in bigger crowds than that. And their weekend, no doubt, was filled with uh, more obviously purposeful things. Some uh, DIY project, some building project that they were involved in, that they could see the fruit of their labours at the end of the weekend. Or perhaps Sunday morning for them was spent sleeping off the party from the night before. Or a trip to Chatsworth. The, the, the two hours of sunshine that we've experienced this week were this morning. You've missed it. Why bother? It's a legitimate question, isn't it? Uh, is this really what you want to be doing with your Sunday morning? And it's not just Sunday, is it? It's a whole of life thing. Is this really what you want to do with your life? Well, in many ways, that was the question facing Zechariah and his contemporaries as we look at uh, this book. They're back in the land after some 70 years in exile. They're the next generation, finally back, starting to rebuild things, rebuild this city and especially rebuild the temple, this wonderful project that God has given them. But it's a pretty tough environment. Economically they're impoverished, numerically they're thin on the ground and they're starting to wonder whether all of this is really heading anywhere. Well, in recent weeks we have seen God's amazing answer to that. As he has filled Zechariah, his prophet, with vision after vision on one single night with why it is worth it, why they build his house and not their own. It has been a spectacular vision. Eight different pictures in one night would have been an amazing night's sleep. A vision of global proportions And I imagine as Zechariah woke up the next morning and that's where we meet him in Zechariah 6, 
As he uh, he made his morning brew, uh, he would have put a few extra scoops of coffee in after the night before. And as we uh, who've seen them with him, these amazing visions sit with him, bleary-eyed across the breakfast table, trying to piece all these visions together. What is it that we're meant to see? Well, we don't have time to, to go through all the different pictures that we have seen and there have been some amazing ones, but I suspect that as Zechariah did that, as he tried to put these pieces together that we've seen over these past months, he did indeed see one clear and magnificent picture. It's a vision that reveals to us the present reality and the future promise for Zechariah's community. A vision that was meant to sustain them as they carried on this work of building the temple. In this vision we see the God who would come back to his city, who would dwell with them, who would call the nations to the city. Now as we turn to Zechariah 6 verses 9 to 15, we see what God does next. Having shown us this vision, having filled our eyes with this, he says, this is where to from here. And really he gives Zechariah and his contemporaries four instructions, four things they're meant to do if they're seeing the vision of the present and the reality clearly. The first of them you see in verse 10. Step one, watch. Watch as God gathers people from the exile. As this building project continues, something is happening before their very eyes. People are coming from the exile to join this city. Do you see it there, verse 10? Take silver and gold from the exiles, those who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Now most of the exiles are still in Babylon at at this point in Israel's history but now they're starting to come one after another after another and they're not empty handed either. They bring silver and gold back into this city. That's step one. Watch as God brings them. Step two, do you see it there? Verse 11, they're to take this silver, literally accept the silver and gold that the exiles bring. And here for me is the first twist in the instructions. Think about what they're trying to do together. They're they're trying to build a temple, trying to build a city. You think uh, of all the things that you could do if silver and gold came into that project or all the things you could use it for, this making crowns would be the last thing you'd perhaps use it for. These are tough times economically. They, They could have bought more materials for the project. They could have paid expert craftsmen to build the temple. Or perhaps even, as we saw last week, put those two giant bronze pillars back up, now silver and gold. That's not what they do at all. They make crowns. It says they're crowned, but more literally it's crowns. They're to make many of them. And we see why in verses 11 and 12. Step three, place the crown on the head of the high priest. Having made these crowns, they are to take them to Joshua who has been appointed their priest in chapter 3 and they are to put it on his head. And here's the second twist. Priests don't wear crowns. Kings do. Priests uh, might wear a turban but certainly not a crown. And yet this is the one who is to wear the crown. As, as Zechariah is told to say in verse 12, tell him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch and he will branch out from this place. I think here we have the very heart of the passage. 
Zechariah places this crown on Joshua's head and he says, here is the man, here is the branch, the branch that will shoot out of this land like a new tree and it will grow and it will grow and it will grow. The branch that comes from this family that Joshua is part of, David's family, the great king of the past. It's to be put on his head. Do you see why in verse 13? Because he is the one who will build the temple of the Lord. And again, we're meant to ask questions. That, that was Zerubbabel's job, if you remember, back in chapter 3, not Joshua's. Then even more questions. We're told he will be clothed with majesty. Now, do you remember what Joshua was clothed with back in chapter 3? Filthy rags. And he will sit on his throne and he will rule from there and he will be a priest on the throne. Now, by the time we are through verses 12 and 13, it becomes clear that something much, much bigger is at play than just Joshua. And I think the key to understanding this huge thing that is at play is to go back to chapter 3 and to see Joshua introduced for us because the hints were there even back then. If you uh, turn back to Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8, you'll see it there. As Joshua is introduced, as he is, is revealed as their priest, this is what is said. Joshua and your associates seated before you are men symbolic of things to come. They're just a hint just a whisper of what is around the corner for God's people. Joshua, the the high priest with crowns of silver and gold, is a picture of one who will wear those crowns, someone called the branch. And he won't be just a priest like Joshua was, he will be a king as well. And he will have great authority and he will have great glory. He will be robed in majesty. These two key roles for God's people, the priest and the king, will come together in one person, the branch. He will do both. The final step in these four instructions we see in verse 14. They're to take this crown that they put on Joshua's head and they're to remove it again because Joshua is not the branch, he is just a hint. And they take the crowns and they put them up in the temple that they're building as a memorial, as a plaque, a statue if you like. It's to stay there as a reminder of of the branch who was to come, of this king who would soon be there. And as the passage ends in verse 15, we're told that even more will come into this city and they will build with the branch. And so until then, Zechariah and his contemporaries are to be diligent, are to work hard and wait for this coming one. Four simple instructions. Well, let me tell you why it is such good news for Zechariah and his contemporaries, why hearing this changes everything. Firstly, it provides them with huge encouragement. I mean, think about these first two instructions that they've been given. Firstly, uh, that, that people are coming and even more will come in the future to join this city and each of them will come with gifts. Think how about how encouraging that is, that this small, really pathetic group of people being told more and more are coming. Each day more will come. Zechariah and his contemporaries are are to be encouraged because God is working. He's gathering people. He's reaching out to the exiles. He's reaching out to Babylon and he's drawing them back. I'm not sure if you've ever been uh, a part of uh, something really small and and seemingly insignificant 
and uh, you watch slowly as it grows into something bigger and bigger. It's an amazing thing, very encouraging thing. I remember back in uh, 2003 in Kellyville where I was in Sydney, we started a new congregation and we started with about 20 or 30 of us and you, you watched as God brought people, as he promises here, day after day, week after week, more came with all sorts of different gifts. Things that we weren't able to do, all of a sudden we were able to do. And the things that we never even thought about doing. That's what's happening for God's people here. More will come. It encourages them to keep going. God is at work here. Your work is not in vain. And so you can confidently give yourselves fully to it. But even more than just being encouraging, the second reason that this news is such good news for Zechariah and his contemporaries is what it does for them is it opens their eyes to the huge thing they are in on. Here in these instructions, as the crown is placed on Joshua's head, they realise that they are in on something much, much bigger than some building project. Someone greater than Joshua will, will hold this role of priest. Now Joshua filled it well. He, he was good at his job, but he was just like them. A sinful man, filthy rags. And someone greater than Zerubbabel would would fill this role as their ruler, which again is good news. Zerubbabel was good at his job, but he was a governor, a mayor at best, a man in a suit, not really clothed in majesty by any stretch. Now God has established these men as just a hint of the big plans that were around the corner. And what were these plans? Plans of the branch... Well, the rest of Zechariah filled them out for us, opened them up. The king was coming. And although uh, all, all throughout the prophets, really, this, this phrase, the branch, became a technical term for the Messiah, the ideal king who God's people longed for, the, the one in the line of David who would restore them, who would judge them, who would dwell with them and who would call in the nations, that one is coming. That's what you're in on, Zechariah. You are making preparations for him. But if you've read on in Zechariah, you start to see this incredible picture of this king who's coming and how magnificent he will be. But as, as it goes on, a puzzle starts to emerge. For all the promise of majesty and splendour, when he comes in chapter 9, verse 9, he comes riding on a donkey. A donkey. And what follows from there is the promise that he will face conflict, difficulties, oppression. As you read on in Zechariah and you see the full dimensions of this king, it all seems to unravel. All this hope, all this expectation seems to fall apart in this pathetic opposed figure on a donkey who will be rejected and pierced and killed, we're told. But then it happens right at the end of the book, despite the rejection and even death, in fact because of those things, God's kingdom breaks in. His glory comes, we're told in in chapter 14, and it fills the earth. At the very end of the book we're given this breathtaking picture of this king now enthroned in his city, ruling as the nations stream in. People coming to this new city, the new Jerusalem, to give him honour and glory. Now if you're a Christian 
And uh, you, you hear these promises of the branch and you hear that he'll come riding on a donkey, you know where it's pointing. This is the bit where we see the Old Testament is, is fulfilled in Jesus. This is the Jesus bit and it's easy to switch off and think, I, I know this, I know he's the one. But let me say what I found so helpful about Zechariah 6 when I was thinking about that this week. That was my exact thought. Oh, they'll know this is coming. I suspect uh, for all of us it's easy to have uh, two pictures of Jesus in our mind. One is Jesus meek and mild, humble and lowly, uh, who was rejected and pierced and killed. The other is the Jesus who is king, who, who rose from the dead, who rules over everything and will be seen in his glory. Two different Jesus. And so when we read uh, of his coming in Zechariah 6, that he will be clothed in majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, we think, oh, that's strong Jesus. Can't wait till the world sees that Jesus. Then they'll know he's king. Then they'll see why I bother being here of a Sunday morning. When you start to think that way, I suspect uh, we've missed the wonder of who Jesus really is on his throne ruling. If you want to show people that Jesus, the glorious one, robed in majesty, then you need to show him what the scriptures show us, where his glory is most magnificently seen. Where is he revealed as this king, this priest, and as the one who will build the temple? Well, surely it's at the cross. That's his most glorious moment. Who, even as he is being mocked and beaten and tortured, is revealed as the one who wears the crown. Matthew 27, they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head and they mocked him and said, What? Hail, King of the Jews. Who even as he is hung up on the cross, Matthew 27, 37 says there's a plaque put behind him declaring who he is. This is Jesus, the who? King of the Jews who three days later is to rise from the dead as Lord and King, who will claim for himself all authority in heaven and earth and who will say, I will build my house, my church, and the gates of hell cannot overcome it. And where do we see this great priest who was to come? Again, is it not in the cross? Hebrews says that the problem with the Old Testament priests, people like Joshua, is that they go into the temple again and again and again and again offering sacrifice for forgiveness of sins. We could never do it. They were always at work, never able to sit down, always walking in doing this. But when this priest came and offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what does he do? He sits down on his throne at the right hand of God. The wonder for us of seeing that Jesus is the one who fulfils these things is that people like Zechariah and his contemporaries were shown only a hint of what was to come and that was enough to stir them to live passionately for God for the rest of their lives, to keep going in this project. But we are those who live in the era not just of promise but fulfilment. The king has come. We are in the era when Christ is building his house when God's kingdom has begun to break into the strongholds of this world, when exiles like you and I have found a home in this city, we have come because he promised we would. 
So let me finish by telling you why I think these instructions are so good for us to hear. Again, two things. Firstly, see how encouraging they are. Be encouraged about the work that you are a part of here and now at this church. God is here. He's blessing our work. People are coming and more will come. Be encouraged and rejoice in what God is doing and see what we do as a church family in light of the promise we have here that more will come. Have you ever wondered why in a service on a Sunday we spend so much time welcoming people? I'm not sure if that gets on your nerves after a while. You just keep hearing these welcomes. You see the welcome pack again. I think I'll see that every week. I know where the welcome pack is. You start to think, oh, I'm welcomed enough. Let's get on with the service. Why do you think we do it? We do it because he's promised more will come. We do it because we're expecting they're here right now. And so if you are here today and you're new to this church, welcome. We were expecting you. Welcome to what God is doing in this world and please join. And for the rest of us who were welcomed long ago, be excited. Expect to see more people here. Expect to see people you've never seen before. Be ready to welcome them. He promised it would happen. And think about what we do as a church family in light of that. Think about our guest events, what we are doing. We're we're making the most of this promise because we know God is in the business of gathering people and we know he does it through the message of the cross. Be in on that. Be prepared to make the most of it. And if if you want to see this promise in the flesh before your very eyes, join a Christianity Explored course. Help with the cooking, help with welcoming, join a table and watch God bring people in. And remember that those whom God brings come with gifts from him, silver and gold. Now I think the phrase there, silver and gold, in this passage is not so much about money, it's about people bringing their very best, glorious gifts. And that shouldn't surprise us because they come from a glorious king. He gives all who join gifts to be part of this building project. You know, Finn and Jamie uh, have got to that age where they love to help me if I'm ever doing something, uh, some DIY around the house. I'm not very good at it, but they, they like to chip in. And while I'm not good at it, they're even worse at it. And uh, so I, I try not to sort of actually give them any real tools to play with while we're doing it. So I'm, I'm drilling away or using a screwdriver. And what we've got is a little plastic tool kit which uh, I give them both one of these, a plastic hammer or a plastic screwdriver and they can sort of tap away without causing much damage. Well, God's not like that. He gives real gifts with eternal effect. He's powerful enough to build on his own and yet he lets us in on it. And I suspect for us here at, at Christchurch, there's a danger of thinking my gifts aren't needed here. There's enough people around very talented people, more, more so than, than I feel. But that's not the picture here, is it? God gathers those he needs. He gives them the gifts that he needs. And he says, welcome, pick up a tool and join us. And know what the point of all this work is, these gifts that he gives us. Remember what they did with them? They made crowns, crowns for the king. You see, when we build here, we don't build for our own glory, nor even for our collective glory as a church, but for the king. 
Our gifts, our labour are for his name's sake, not ours. That's the very purpose of why we meet. And finally, see what you're in on. The kingdom of God is much bigger than this church. It's much bigger than the Church of England. It's actually much bigger than anything that is happening in this country at this moment. It's global. You know, if the BBC were to really capture the breaking news of this hour, they'd be right here, watching as God's kingdom breaks in. Here and throughout Europe and Africa and Asia and US and you name it, he is breaking in. God has gone global and the gates of hell cannot overcome it. So let me say welcome to the main event of all history. This community has a leader and his name is Christ Jesus. He is risen, reigning, glorious and he is coming again. He builds here at Canterbury Avenue and he builds all over the world. When I was at university I uh, had a job at a squash centre. I've never played squash in my life, I I don't intend to start. But while I was there I I tried to get into it but uh, whenever somebody tried to ask me which racket to buy or which ball to use, I'm no idea really. And I I got to the point where I think I'm useless at this job, I, I shouldn't really have this job. And then there was this moment, I remember about six months in, when Michelle Martin walked in to the squash centre. Now, if you know anything about squash, Michelle Martin was virtually unbeatable for a decade, world squash champion, incredible player. And even I knew who she was. And uh, she walked in, all of a sudden, I thought, wow, she plays here. And uh, I remember trying very hard to get involved with what she was doing, to sort of be a part of things. I I sold her a ball once. I, uh, I swept the court after she played. But if somebody asked me, do you know Michelle? The answer is, oh, not really. Yeah, I've sold her a ball and I've swept the court, but that's about as far as it goes. Brothers and sisters, you are working for the king of the whole world. And if asked, do you know him? You can answer, know him. He's my brother. And his father is my father. Oh yes, I know him and and he knows me. He got me this job. I work with him. We're we're in it together. He builds, I help. Let me finish with this. Can you remember what they were told to do with these crowns after they'd made them, after they'd taken them off Joshua's head? They were to put them in the the house of God as a memorial, as as a plaque if you like. Let me ask you, have you noticed how many crowns are in this building? Well, look around. In fact, look right next to you. There he is, or she is. You see, God is not in the business of of dusty plaques and reredos and statues. His crowns are people. Did you hear the Apostle Paul in our other reading in 1 Thessalonians when he said of the Thessalonian church, what is our hope? our joy or the crown in which we will boast before God? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. And Paul imagines that moment when he is standing before Jesus in eternity and he says, look, the Thessalonians are here. Brothers, let me encourage you with this. The gifts that God has given you will produce many crowns. As you help a person... Uh, one to one as you meet with them and as you study the word of God together, as you help a couple through a difficult patch in their marriage, 
as you, as you help someone come to Christ or simply as you, you meet with other Christians in a small group and you do life together as you spur each other on, on towards love and good deeds, there is your joy and your crown. And so heed the words of verse 15. Carry on working. Be diligent in these things, knowing that your labour is not in vain. And knowing that there is coming a day that Revelations 4 and 5 tells us when we will all lay our crowns before him. And we will sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Amen.